Chapter Eleven, Part One of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mueller visits Rose Cottage. Several days passed. It was already the twenty-eighth of September, and still no light had been brought into the darkness of the Erlock mystery. This, at least, was the opinion of the people of Inzersdorf as well as of Lieutenant Erlock and his friend Commissioner Lair. But Carl, who saw Mueller daily and hourly, felt that something of importance had been discovered. The veteran detective wore his armor vest every day, but in spite of the necessity for this precaution he seemed in the best of spirits. He spent more time than before in the brick factory, and showed the greatest possible interest in everything connected with it. He had visited the cashier, Gebhardt, in his office and had drawn out an invitation from the latter to accompany him to his private rooms by means of a few casual remarks. As they passed through the halls on this occasion, Gebhardt pointed to another door with the words, "'That's where my colleague Bauer lives.' Mueller did not need the explanation, for he had already seen the visiting card tacked on the door. Several of the bachelor officials and clerks of the factory were domiciled in one wing of the office building and the wing itself was connected with the manager's dwelling-house by a covered walk. Mueller led the conversation around to the subject of the other clerks, with particular interest in Bauer. Gebhardt, as well as all others who came in contact with him, was obliged to admire Bauer's intelligence and capacity for work, but he too shared the personal antipathy for the man that everyone else felt. Even the villagers did not like him, and the jovial innkeeper confessed to Gebhardt once that only a stern sense of the business advantage of it enabled him to be as cordial to Bauer as to his other patrons. His pretty little wife was open in her dislike of the hamburger, as the villagers called Bauer because of the fact that he had lived for several years in North Germany and was fond of using expressions and words of that locality. She justified her feelings by the fact that Bauer added an inclination to run after any pretty woman to his other disagreeable qualities. That is, a woman counts such conduct on the part of a man as disagreeable, usually only when the man is not attractive. On his first visit to Gebhardt's room, the cashier showed him the bit of black cord which he had found there the day after the attack. It was a piece of black horsehair lariat, identical with the bit Mueller had found twisted in the carving of Erlock's ebony bed. Early one bright afternoon, the detective set out to pay his promised call on Dr. Maximoff. The owner of Rose Cottage had evidently seen him coming, for he stood on the threshold, his hands cordially outstretched in welcome. As they walked through the wide hall, little Sonia ran to meet them, for she had already developed a great fondness for Mr. Hartman on her various visits to the Plone House. Maximoff introduced to his guest the dignified elderly lady who took charge of his household and his little girl, and praised her patience with him in spite of what he called his attacks of violent anger. Mrs. Schober smiled in appreciation of the doctor's self-accusation and assured Mr. Hartman that one could not wish for a more agreeable employer. "'Shall I send tea up to your room?' she asked. "'Please do,' said Maximoff cheerily, running his arm through that of his guest. "'I want you to see my sanctum, the room in which I have collected about me everything that gives me inspiration, that enables my soul to lift itself out of the prose of everyday existence.' and yet our lives have driven such deep roots into this everyday existence that it gives them their chief color said hartman yes you are right replied the russian and yet you are wrong too one can carve out a life for oneself alone apart from the other and it is this secret life that makes the other endurable 
"'Papa, you're going to show Mr. Hartman your rings, aren't you?' asked Sonia. "'Mimi told me that he liked Aunt Anna's old jewelry so much, didn't you?' she said, snuggling up to the guest with an air of childish importance. "'Yes, indeed I did, my dear little girl, and I want to see everything that is interesting and strange.' "'All right, baby, we'll show Mr. Hartman all our treasures,' said the doctor. "'But you run along now and help Mrs. Schober decorate the tea-table.' "'Oh, you are expecting guests?' "'The very dearest guests who could come to me, and I include you among them. My betrothed is coming with her relatives.' "'But hadn't I better go away?' "'Nonsense. You mustn't think of it for a moment. We have all grown so fond of you, and they will be as glad to see you here as they are to greet you in their own house.' You have finished your work for the day, I know, and you must surely stay and be one of the party. Really, I hadn't an idea that they were coming, continued Hartman apologetically. I had letters to write, and they kindly sent my dinner for me out to my own room. I have not seen the ladies at all today, and I saw Mr. Plone only for a moment. All the more reason why you should stay and see them now, replied Maximoff, pressing his guest's hand warmly. And here, now you are about to enter my favorite room. They stood on the threshold of a large apartment, furnished in dark colors, but with great richness and dignity. Heavy, tall bookcases and cabinets in dark wood lined the walls. Behind the glass doors were rows of heavy tomes and a number of scientific instruments. What wall space was still left free was hung with costly rugs, on which were placed rare and equally costly weapons of various countries. Between the two windows of the room stood an enormous flat-topped desk, covered with books and papers. "'Really, this is delightful,' said the guest, as his eyes wandered about the attractive room. "'I can indeed imagine that it is pleasant to work here, and to forget the everyday worries. What a stunning cabinet! That is as handsome a late empire piece as I have seen.' Still speaking, Hartman went forward to the corner where the round front cabinet stood. "'Ah, there you see, Sonia. We don't need to show our friend the way,' laughed Maximoff. "'He finds out our chiefest treasures at a glance.' "'It was impolite of me, wasn't it?' remarked Hartman, pausing where he stood. "'I ought to be punished. No, don't show me your rings now. I must learn to wait patiently. Don't you think so, Sonia? One ought to learn to be patient.' Sonia was anxious to lead him to the cabinet, but he resisted and began the tour of the bookcases. "'You are particularly interested in the subject of mental alienation, I see,' he said as he read through the titles. "'That is my specialty,' replied the doctor. The human soul interests me far more than the human body. That's because your body is so healthy, said Hartman with a smile. If you knew what it was to be physically ill, you'd find the study of the body more interesting than you do now. However, my argument doesn't hold water, for your soul seems to me to be as healthy as your body. I have seldom met a man who impressed me as so strong and sane and well-proportioned in character as you are. You flatter me. Not at all. I am merely expressing my opinion. From our pleasant evenings in the Plone household, I have learned to know you as a delightful conversationalist and a good card-player. Now I see on your desk the fat manuscript of what is doubtless a scientific work. I know your fondness for flowers and that you supervise your own garden, also that you are your little girl's teacher. I have heard of your charities from many of those whom you have helped hereabouts. You must let me tell you that I consider you a very remarkable man." all that the highly cultivated, civilized man ought to be, but is not, except in the most unusual cases. In the most unusual cases, repeated Maximoff, with a gaze out into space that seemed to forget the presence of his guest. Ah, I see you have Pitaval also, and a number more works on criminal jurisprudence. Are you particularly interested in that line of study, too? Why, yes, very much so, 
Maximoff nodded, smiling. Pitoval, for instance, has given very important contributions on the subject of psychology. Every criminal case interests me because almost everyone shows the lack of proportion in the mental makeup of most human beings. But here comes the samovar, he interrupted himself. Now for the lighter things of life. Do the honor, Sonia, darling, and then run and help Mrs. Schober, because if you don't, the flowers won't be nearly as prettily arranged. The little girl busied herself about the tea-table, arranging the cups and saucers, ready to hand, lit the lamp under the kettle, then gave her father a hearty kiss and ran out of the room. "'You are a happy man, indeed,' said Maximoff's guest, looking after the charming child. "'Yes, yes, indeed. Is she not a treasure? And I am happy now. But there have been hours in my life when I cursed this existence, and such hours may come again,' he sighed deeply." "'Now that is your national melancholy again,' said Mueller sympathetically. "'Is it anything you fear on Sonia's account? "'Have you noticed anything particular about the child? "'Only that she is unusually pretty. "'Did you not notice how bright her eyes are "'and how unnaturally brilliant her skin? "'Well, what of that? "'She is the image of her mother, in that as in other ways. "'Come, I will show you.' "'He led the way into the next room "'and halted before a life-size portrait.' draped in crepe, of a beautiful woman of fragile, delicate appearance. Mueller looked at the portrait, then spoke, with a trembling in his voice. "'Yes, yes, indeed. Sonia bids fair to be as beautiful as her mother was. To himself, he thought, is the child as delicate also, and will she too die early?' And he understood the sadness in the eyes of the handsome man who stood looking up at the picture. "'As beautiful, yes, and as frail,' murmured Maximoff, holding his hands to his eyes. Then he turned quickly and went out of the room, Mueller following him more slowly. When he caught up with his host, the latter was already pouring out the tea. "'I don't think that I believe in the theory of heredity as strongly as you do,' said the guest casually, as he took his cup. "'I believe that it is possible to work against the development of an inherited trait, either mental or physical, and sometimes even to exterminate it entirely.' "'Do you really think so, dear friend? Do you really think so?' exclaimed the doctor warmly. His face flushed and his eyes gleamed, but the quiet poise of his guest seemed to calm him. He drank his tea in silence for a few moments. Then he began again. "'The book I am writing concerns itself with this very theory of heredity, and I will confess to you that what you have just said is my own standpoint. I believe that one can fight inherited tendencies and destroy them, destroy them completely.' Again, the excitement mastered him. We must destroy them, in whatever way we can, but it is easy enough, and therefore I don't believe in the power of heredity any more than you do. But you're not drinking your tea, isn't it to your taste? Mr. Hartman hastened to assure his host that the beverage was in every way satisfactory. He finished his cup and lit one of the tiny cigarettes that lay in a silver dish on the tray. Maximoff began to smoke also and started a new subject of conversation. With no attempt at transition, he began to talk of the transmigration of souls. He handled this theme with brilliant originality, and his guests gained the impression that the eccentric Russian had occupied himself intensely with the subject, and that he believed in the theory absolutely. The interesting metaphysical conversation was interrupted, however, by the entrance of the Plone family, and the talk became lighter. As the weather was so favorable, the company adjourned to the garden after having had their tea, and Mrs. Plone and the children led Mr. Hartman about among the flower-beds, showing him the wonders that Maximoff had wrought since he became master of the property. 
The doctor's garden was not very large, but was so skillfully planned that it seemed much greater in size than it really was. Artistic groups of trees and shrubs were placed about in such a way as to show the smooth stretches of lawn to greater advantage. Graveled paths twisted in and out among the screening bushes, giving the impression that one might walk some distance before coming out into the open again. Mrs. Plone and Hartman, the children dancing about them, followed one of these paths in its various windings down towards the lower end of the garden. They passed a round stretch of lawn, in the midst of which was a circle of carefully tended box surrounding a small fir tree. "'There, Aunt Anna,' said Sonia, catching Mrs. Plone's hand, "'there's something new, and Papa made it all himself without any help from the gardener. And he's done ever so many things in the conservatory without the gardener, too. Anyway, the gardener hasn't been here for some time.' "'Then you don't have a gardener regularly for all this work?' asked Hartman. Sonia explained that they did have a gardener formerly, but that he had been dismissed for disobedience during the month of August, and that Papa found he could get along just as well alone. Then the children led the party into the conservatories, where there was so much to see that they spent quite some time there. Plone himself sat in a comfortable chair on the veranda, reading the evening paper. Maximoff and his betrothed strolled up and down, in front of the house, arm in arm. They were talking of the various alterations they should make in their home once they were married. Suzanne Plone was an attractive, warm-hearted girl, but her nature was too thoroughly well-poised to be either sentimental or passionate. Her calmness made an excellent and wholesome foil for the brilliant, easily excited character of the man beside her. "'You mustn't look at me like that, Sergius,' she said gently, as she caught the hot glance of his dark eyes resting on her. "'I am afraid of you when you look like that. I am afraid of you sometimes, anyway. Afraid of your passionate nature, and—I know you'll laugh at me now. I am afraid of your tremendous physical strength.' "'Oh, dearest, dearest,' he murmured, drawing her to him in spite of her resistance. "'You mustn't do that either,' she pleaded. "'Not at all. Never,' he whispered in her ear. She blushed with an embarrassed smile." "'You foolish man,' she said. "'But now, anyway, you must walk beside me quietly and quite demurely.' "'Are you really afraid of me?' he asked with a new tone of anxiety in his voice. She nodded. "'Yes, I am, sometimes. It made me shiver to see you break that heavy oak stick the other day. But I know that very strong men have to do that sort of thing occasionally to use up their excess of vigor.' "'Well, then, what's the matter?' "'Oh, I don't mean that. But at the time the thought came over me.' He could break me in two like that. And I shuddered to my very heart. I don't know why. Now don't look so gloomy, dear Sergius. Don't I know how good and how faithful your heart is? Another woman might feel hurt to see that beautiful picture still hanging upstairs there. I like to stand and look at it, for to me it gives an added proof of your power of affection. I like to realize that you cannot and will not forget the woman who first won your heart. And it does not offend you? It does not hurt you? he asked anxiously. Suzanne shook her head. We will share your heart as sisters, your dear dead love and I, she replied tenderly, stroking from his brow the furrow her last words had drawn there. Then they joined the others, and an hour later the guests left Rose Cottage. Before his departure Mr. Hartman had given his solemn promise to return the following day and examine Maximoff's pride, his collection of antique rings. When Mueller retired to his pavilion that evening, he was convinced that Dr. Maximoff was the other of the originals of whom Plone had spoken. But the Russian was so much a finished man of the world 
that his originality was scarcely perceptible outside of his own little kingdom, the home that expressed his rich personality so well. Mueller felt surprised again at the thought that this busy and versatile man would even take time to do the actual manual labor in his garden. He knew him also as a philanthropist of astonishing liberality. The Plones had told Hartman early in his visit how generous Maximoff was to people of the village. He had built a lodging house and a library for them, and every day ten poor people were given dinners at his expense in the parish house. This afternoon, as they walked back to the manager's home, Plone told Hartman that he had just heard, not from Maximoff himself, but from a friend who was a physician in a Viennese hospital, that the Russian had given 40,000 crowns to endow two beds in the establishment. The only condition was that the name of the donator should not be mentioned. Of course, I wouldn't let him see that I knew anything about it, and you must promise to do the same. Hartman promised readily that he would not betray the secret. The veteran detective had taken a great liking to Maximoff, and his flattering words when they were alone that afternoon had been only the expression of his sincere admiration. End of chapter 11, part 1